Welcome to Blacklisted Remarks. My name is Nick Stumphauser. I'm Spencer Field. And we are outside today because it is a beautiful 53 degree day. And we start the podcast with a flat out lie. The reason we're outside <laughs> is because Spencer went to go book the room and apparently did not hit the big red flashing button at the end of the screen. Yeah, so uh, that's why you hear the beautiful sounds of birds and air conditioners. And yeah, generators and other natural things. But I guess that kind of uh, ties in with our topic today, which is uh, aspirations, uh, nihilism, the meaning of life. We are out in nature. And uh, this is going to be less of an authoritative, uh, it's not even going to be an authoritative podcast about... All like, unlike all of our other podcasts, which right. the authoritative topic. This isn't us telling you how you should live your life. Yep. Um, I would say that this is more of our journey through coming to terms with the meaning of life, uh, the topic of nihilism, and then balancing that with our own goals and aspirations. And, uh, you know, does anything really matter? Because we've been uh, we've been away from blacklist remarks for a few weeks. That's all on me. And uh, want to jump back in with a really nice and easy topic that you can talk about at your dinner table. Yeah, we thought this would be a great conversation, easy speak. Right. We thought we could use really small words, kind of like re-engage slowly over the next couple of weeks and build up to like a meaningful topic. We thought we'd start with some like piddly right. thing like this. Yeah, next week we're going to talk about uh, the price of tea in China, but yep. stick around for that. I think the week after that is goose eggs, if I remember right. It is right. indeed, yeah. How to boil and how to bake. Right. Uh, so I would like to start with you, Spencer. Go. Uh, with a question of what are just basically your the the log line, I would say, of your aspirations the log line in in of film my in film speak. A log line for the uh, listeners who don't know is a one to two sentence description of the entirety of your film. Ah, okay. So when I'm asking Spencer for a log line of his life, it's how would he describe his intention for how he sees his life going. Yeah, for you business students out there, we call this, what's the elevator pitch of your of your life? Ah, yes, yeah, elevator there you pitch. Go. I would say, uh, well, first, to be fair, I asked Nick over Facebook Messenger, hey, Nick, what do you think the topic should be? <laughs> I don't hear back, which I'm fine with. I assume Nick's busy doing other things. And Nick shows up and about, I don't know, 10 minutes ago says, we should talk about this. And I'm like, <laughs> my original thought was like, okay. My next thought is like, was this planned? Like spring, spring super difficult conversation on Spencer, uh, but I would say the log line of my life started um, when I was young, really aspiring to be a, a problem solver, and that really changed when I probably hit middle school, high school, into wanting to be a good Christian, and I think my definition of what good Christian changed um, over the course of my experience in middle school and high school. I think at the end of high school, beginning of college, it kind of morphed into being a good person, uh, whatever the definition of a good person is. And I think as it has evolved to today, uh, without giving it much thought, I would say that my my aspiration would be to fill Spencer's role in society, whatever that may be. Interesting. To me, that sounds a little bit like society might be dictating what your role is. I think that my role is relevant to what the society needs because I think that uh, many people like say, this is what my role is. So in business world, people you know, create a business and they go, this is what I'm going to sell, but the market doesn't actually demand that. I think part of my role in life is to be responsive to those around me and to not kind of put my stake in the ground and say, this is the meaning of life world revolve around me. Very interesting. That is far more humble than I think I would have been able to produce. So follow-up question then uh, to 
continue with the second part of our, our title here, and that is, uh, are you in any respect existential, metaphysical, at all, nihilistic? I don't know. I think that when this has changed also significantly, the log line of this would be starting out, I, as a you know, two-year-old, definitely believed in magic dragons and you know, magic conch shells. I think, oh, here comes the wind. I'm going to fight with the wind. And then when I moved into my middle school years, it was definitely agreement with the miracles performed in the Bible. Uh, now I would say that while I operate from a materialistic standpoint, I also am open to the idea of things other than what is measurable existing. I think our Western society says it doesn't exist unless we can measure it. And I think that things definitely can exist, which we cannot measure yet. Interesting. And I, I remember us having that conversation a little bit. About, was that on Blacklisted Remarks? Uh, yes, okay. we did. We it, did was, it was on the first one. I think it's the one. conversations, actually. Yeah, well, unfortunately. Now, it used to be Dot on Tap, but now it's uh, Blacklisted. And, and I think it was our discussion of abortion, and, and you were saying how uh, the, you know, that we, we diverged into the soul. I should yeah. say di digressed into a conversation on the soul. And so on. Um, no, I think it was a divergence, not a digression. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's a very important point to make. <laughs> so then uh, the final part of the title is us discussing the meanings of life, which is kind of wrapped up into your first two answers. Yeah. But if you were to make an authoritative statement <laughs> oh, got it. on the entirety of why there are Homo sapiens sapiens marching Homo around. Homo sapiens sapiens. Yes, the, the, the man who knows and who thinks and knows he is thinking. Yes. Uh, if you were to make an authoritative statement on why we exist and why there's life in general, or if there is a why in general, what would the meaning of life be? Good question. According to Spencer Field. I have spent many, many hours thinking about this question. <laughs> I've spent even more hours talking to people about this question. So to reduce that down into a log line, I think it would be very difficult. Oh, I only wanted a log line for, oh, your, okay, for your life right. plan. So pick, you know, buckle down, grab yeah, yourself some tea, in. pop that popcorn. Here we go. Uh, I think I'll still keep it relatively short and say that if we live in a purely materialistic world, then all meaning is self-derived. And we may choose a meaning for our life, but we are the choosers of that meaning. So mm -hmm. any meaning that I pick is of, I think, very low ultimate value. There's no big truth behind it. So when I choose meaning, I think I choose meaning in relation to the community around me as well as into the relation of how I think I'm genetically wired and gifted. Uh, if I was to give a authoritative, uh, prescriptive description of what I think the meaning to life would be, I would say, hmm, I would say with absolute confidence and certainty that the meaning to life is to be the most fully who I am as dictated and required by the community and the societies around me, focusing on serving others authoritative statement finished that's really interesting so there's there's a lot of really interesting things there i think the very end is what i'm most uh magnetized by and that would be um your continued referral or uh yeah i'd say referral to the community yeah and when what the community asks of you mm -hmm. and also uh, i guess i would just say that 
the interesting part was that you would say that there is a meaning outside of what we what we might derive in that it is serving others. I would um, say that that's certainly part of it. Which I, I, I see, and this is just an observation, not yeah. a, a condemnation, and that is that there's some vestiges of Christian thought in there as well. Absolutely. Certainly. Sure. I'm sure that that opinion is formed by right. my, my upbringing. Right. Which um, I'm, I'm okay with. Like, I'm a, a, a critic of religion, but I'm not a critic of good ideas. I will adopt good ideas if they're good ideas. You good. know, Hitler may say rain is wet and Jesus may say murder is wrong. And, right. and I would agree with both of them yeah. regardless of who said it. So, um, that, yeah, I find that very interesting. So, uh, I'll p- push a little bit harder on the very end there. Why is, is serving others, would you say something that, and this is going to this is going to devolve very quickly into a bit of a circular question. Don't worry, here. they already buckled in for my, my yeah. long go. And that is, um, so why do you think serving others is something that we ought to do? Mm-hmm. And if your answer is at all related to the self yep. and how it edifies you, would that not be then, uh, is there the old question of is any action really yes. altruistic? Good, great question. Um, I would say that through my experiences of late moving into the world of yoga and mindfulness uh, and also trying to understand through traditional psychology what drives and motivates people, so much of what we do is based on the fear response. And when you go diving into society trying to understand what people's deepest fear is, it's usually the fear of disconnection in some way. And sometimes that exemplifies itself in other ways, and sometimes it exemplifies itself in a way uh, in, in a way like, I don't want to tick people off versus I just don't want to be disconnected, or I don't want to be different because I might then be disconnected. So I would say that the reason I am so community focused is because I think that the community is so important to who I am and how I think and my role in the community. I, I have moved, I was at a Lake Trust Credit Union talking to the president of Lake Trust and he was explaining the space they had and he said when we built this building we had a question in our heads and the question was will there be a lot of me space in this building or will there be a lot of we space in this building and I think that I lived my life very much focused on what is the me purpose of this versus what is the we purpose of this so I would say in a long-winded answer which is thus because I haven't actually thought that question through very well that I am focused on others because they are of a high priority and a high value in my life, and I see myself interweaved in their success. Interesting. So I can't help but noticing that at the root of that answer, there was still some self-driven motivation um, that whether it be happiness or self-actualization, that that is the impetus for your community-centric thinking. Would I be correct in saying that? I think that it is not devoid of an internal okay. focus. I, I would think I would be relatively cocky to say that I've stripped that out of my motivation. Right, right. I, I would also say, at least I'd also hope, that my internal motivation lies in and beyond a self-motivation. Because I think that there are times where I hope that I perform acts for others or for the community around me knowing that I may not benefit particularly out of it. And it, it may be a benefit which I receive, but that may not also be the motivating factor. Is that even possible, do you think, to have somebody work and operate entirely altruistically? 
entirely altruistically, I think the answer is probably no, but I, I'll give you an example. So yesterday I was working on a project and I was walking through the lobby of this office building and in walks a woman and she's looking around blankly. And I, I don't work at the building, I know very little about the building, and I choose to engage with her. I have another meeting to go with and I said, can I help you? And she goes, yes, I have my sister in the car, we have an appointment in the building and she needs a wheelchair and there's no wheelchair in the lobby to bring out. Uh, and she looked very perturbed, so I put down my things. I said, well, let me help you with that. So I went and I found one of the staff of the building. I explained that we needed a wheelchair. They brought me to their back room to find a wheelchair. They couldn't find it, so they left, but I found one. So I brought the wheelchair down, carried it down a flight of stairs, brought it to the woman, helped the woman get her sister into the wheelchair, and wheeled her then to her, her appointment, which was right. several floors away. When I did that, I was, quote, harming myself. I mean, I had tasks that I needed to get done. I yes. had an appointment which I needed yes. to get to. And there was nobody around at the time to see me performing these activities. And I also didn't feel like particularly good about it. Like I wasn't- Really? Okay. I, there was, to me, it was a pretty normal activity to engage in. There was very little like, great job Spencer, you're a good community yeah, yeah, yeah. society. Now, of course there was some of that, but I would hope that my motivations in that situation were not, I am doing this so that I feel good. However, because I did it, I did feel good. Right, I think right. that my motivations, at least in a, ideal world where this person needs help and I can help them let me do perform that because I can better our society by performing this action my last comment on that would be if I was to break down my motives from external versus internal motivations I definitely think that there was certainly internal motivation in there it was not devoid of that but I would also hope that that was not the primary motivating factor right 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 and um a few interesting thoughts thoughts about that. Um, first off would be, um, though you and I are only separated by three years, I'm 18, Spencer's 22. Yes. Four years. Four years. Four years. It is uh, a significant uh, maturity, and I have no qualms with saying that I think that though I would have probably done the same thing, and actually, I don't even know if I would have done that same thing. I think at, at my point in my life right now, I would have seen this woman looking around and been like, well, sucks to be her, and walked right past to my meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, as disgusting as that sounds, I do have to be honest and say that's probably what I've done. I think when I was 18, I think I would have done the exact right. same thing. And so... Actually, uh, when I was 18, I don't know that I even would have noticed the woman being perturbed. Really? Yeah. Okay. So I feel I feel slightly better <laughs> than the, the, the theoretical eighteen-year-old Spencer. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm sure that if I were in that situation and I did happen to notice that woman and I did happen to stop and ask her if I could help her, I don't know that I would have gone as far to get her to the wheelchair. Mm -hmm. um, but if I did, the moment I started walking down the stairs with that wheelchair, I would have just thought I was I was the shit. I was the best <laughs> thing on planet Earth. I was Superman saving the woman falling from the Lois daily plane. Yeah. Yeah. Because look at me, I'm carrying a wheelchair down the stairs, and I would have walked away feeling like, ah, it's just day in the life of Nick Stumphauser. There you go. So, Watch that society. And, and I think that's a function of, like I said, just me still having a lot of maturing to do as an 18-year-old. And then also I would say, and I could be wrong, but your journey, journey through mindfulness, that you are actually able to um, evacuate a large portion of this internal look-at-me type motivation, and it's more of this external um, altruistic type motivation. See, I'm going to push back on this, and I 
think that what you're saying in principle is correct, but in method is incorrect. Okay. From my experience, it's not so much that I've been able to like delete or silence or evacuate these internal motivations which I possess. Rather, I become aware of them. I think true, so, which and, is what mindfulness is. Right, is and so yeah. I would say that that I haven't seen a decrease in them. And actually, I'd say the more aware of them I become, the more the louder they become right, in right. my head. But it's knowing that that voice is running around in my head and being able to say, ah, Spencer is thinking this. Yeah, yeah. And then I think the last thing that I would say is just for the audience members who have stuck around this far to uh, to Spencer's discussion, uh, don't think that this is unrelated to uh, aspirations, nihilism, and the meanings of life. Because yeah. if you think about it, uh, which we are, we are definitely thinking about it. And that is the uh, these type of micro-operations that we do in our day-to-day life, they're motivated by something or they're motivated by nothing, but either way they have to do with what we perceive the meaning of life to be and the fact that we're all speeding toward death at any moment and how do does our... Uh, life compare and, and the actions that we do how does that compare in the face of of, of it ceasing so. yeah and i would refine that by saying that every mo- action we take is motivated by something there is no action which right. we take which is a devoid of a motivation internal or external and i would say that oftentimes when we're looking at the meaning of life what we're actually asking the question of is what do you value what are your yeah, priorities that's true so uh, another question would be um, all right good last question that's my turn to ask you things okay that's fine well this isn't this is sort of an opinion question to the to the world at large but to you because you are the world at large at this oh, moment why thank you um, and that would take that world you just got downranked <laughs> <laughs> and that would be um, Damn! I just uh, just <laughs> it just flew the coop. Um, it'll, it'll it'll come back to me. All right, that chicken will fly back. Yes, okay. it will. Unless there's another type of poultry which flew that coop. Yes. So I suppose go ahead ask your questions. And My then... turn. All right. So while you asked me some very good questions, I'd like to ask those back to you, but I'd like to modify them a little bit. Ooh. Because in my opinion, this entire conversation revolves almost solely around the question of what do you value i Mm. think that every one of those things comes back to if you tell me what you value i can answer those questions on your behalf very interesting so i like to start with our first our first uh object in our in our conversation today is aspirations so nick in your what is your log line of aspirations sure sure through the course and what does that aspiration tell you about what you valued at that time. I was actually going to suggest that we turn this into a bit of a game. So I tell you what I value. You try and okay. guess what my uh, aspirations are. Well, obviously that'll be pretty obvious. But uh, toward toward the end of this of this segment, yep. you might uh, it might become more difficult. Okay. So Ooh. I I greatly value uh, Matt. Cur- current tense. Current tense. Okay. Current tense. Can we start with past tense. Past tense. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, past Wait, remember, tense. Remember, this is a log line. This is a log line. Yeah. Um, so you're talking about like in my childhood? Whenever you think is most appropriate to start. Most appropriate to start would be right now. Okay. Um, my childhood and what I valued then is uh, rather embarrassing uh, as of now. I well, remember it also helped form you. So that it did help form important. me, yes. Well, if we're, if we're referring to, and I, I bet I could find it on my phone, but I won't waste the audience's time looking for it. But there was a picture of... Uh, <laughs> I'm snickering because I'm thinking they're listening to this podcast. They obviously don't care. <laughs> they're obviously, yeah, they're obviously wasting their time anyway. It's, it's kind of like the people who watch a half-hour commercial about how to save 30 seconds when grating cheese. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, right. 
Back to what you were saying. So I remember seeing, uh, you know, those projects when you're six years old and you're you're in first or however old, what grade you're in when you're six years old. Yeah. I'm never good at figuring that out. Um, I, the math is age minus five equals grade. So first grade. Yeah, first yeah. kindergarten. Uh, so I was first grade slash kindergarten, and I did uh, one of those projects like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said I want to be a funeral director, a dentist, and a priest. Uh, Those can go together quite well. Actually. I guess. I guess so. Uh, because funeral director, because my papa was a funeral director. Yeah. Dentist, because they use cool tools, yep. and that was a, that was a direct quote yep. from six-year-old Nick Stumphauser. And uh, priest, because uh, I was ex- vehemently Catholic until I'd say I was about fifteen years old. Yeah. Um, those obviously, or maybe not obviously, have uh, have changed dramatically i think now which i wouldn't say are set in stone but the things that i greatly value are magic and film which i believe to be the same thing um and my ability to reach the largest audience possible with those two things okay so quite obviously that would take the uh that would take the form of film director on a studio scale but with the freedom of an independent filmmaker. I want to be able to make the film that I make, not what the producers are telling me to make. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that would be what I would I value. Oh, that's so superficial, though. You were talking about the community and stuff. Let's see, do I value the community? <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring it back. No, you want to do this because you want to solve world hunger. Coney was a great example of the uh, things Nick Stumphauser wants to bring no, into the world. No, um, I don't give a damn about world hunger. No, I okay. do. I totally do. <laughs> um, I do. I want to because I... I, like everybody else in the world, I think I'm right. And I therefore want to... And I think because... I think the things that I think are right will help people to live a better life. And as a result, cloaking those moral premises inside of film Mm -hmm. and magic and performance in general and and reaching such a wide audience that Mm -hmm. I can terraform the brain space of of the world. that's a great one. I love that. Terraforming brain space. Can I go in your business card, Nick Stamphauser? brain space terraformer that will go on my business card Please, so thank you uh you know for for just an example because it wouldn't be a blacklist mark podcast with nick stumphauser if he didn't criticize religion of course not. um uh, for example islam so uh if i wanted to repudiate some mm-hmm. facet or the entire facet of the ideology of islam i cannot just make a film saying uh muhammad sucks you know i could but it, it wouldn't sell any tickets it and might nobody would be kind of easy film to make but whatever it probably would be pretty easy <laughs> film right to make along. oh look at that <laughs> um i could make a documentary but what i could do is instill uh western ideologies and promote them in a er, and show them in a, in a good light mm-hmm. in an edifying light and and encapsulate those in a larger film mm-hmm. And deliver it to as many people as I can, and as a result, people will come to appreciate and glorify what are secretly what they don't even realize are Western ideologies. And as a result, it will degrade the efficacy of Islam. Okay, so now I want to comment on what you just said. Sure. What you said to begin with was one of your aspirations was to to use the art of magic and performance in the 
with the ability to reach a very large audience right. to bring about a result. Yes. So I think what you might value there is not being a great performer. What you might not value is having a large audience or the ability to tell a great story in a in a manner which engages people. But rather, the end result is what I'm really after. So what is it about those two things which you mentioned, the being able to perform and having a large audience, that brings you to the place? What is that that A plus B equals? What's that equal? Sure. I, I see what you're saying there. And I think in that regard, it would sort of bring me... So I talked about aspirations, mm-hmm. and this would, I guess, bring me to the nihilism and meaning of life part, and I segue. Great. I don't even have to ask the question. No, you don't. Right. Um, well, you, you, you probably will have to refine my ramblings. Um, and that is that I think that we are not immortal in any sense... And so it's sort of like a fadeaway shot in basketball. Mm-hmm. You're going out of bounds, and you have the ball, yeah. right? You're no longer the star of this basketball game. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get the slam dunk. You're not going to do any of these awesome things. You're going to fall on your ass, and you're going to be out of bounds. And in the game of basketball, this is where the analogy breaks down. You can get back up. You can walk back in. But right. in life, you throw that fadeaway. Yeah. And the, I think the purpose of the meaning of life on a very human level Yeah is similar to what you say um first i think it's completely self-derived but when you look inward uh you can either be selfish or you can be altruistic mm-hmm. in whatever semantic way we find in the, in the brain is it is it really altruistic or is it, you can either be selfish or altruistic i think it's the most noble thing to do is to throw that fade away and try and try and make that three-point shot try and make that game-winning shot as you fade away out of people's vernacular as as nobody really cares about you anymore um and you can point to an an endless number of great people who have changed the world for the better Mm -hmm. uh who are now no longer with us but we read about them in history books and i know it's a very old cliche that you live on through your legacy but i think that's the only way we can live on and i'm not here for immortality i'm not trying to to become immortal because i know we're not and i know there's no way that we can be immortal but I do think that it would, that if there is any meaning to what we have, every breath that we take, it should be to make it better for, for those that come after us, not worse. It's very interesting you say that. I find that the topic of legacy, in at least in the <clears throat> business world which I run around in, has become over the last three years a larger and larger and larger topic, which really? people want to engage in. Interesting. Yeah, there's legacy training for CEOs and boards of directors. There's legacy training for retirement. Retirement planning has kind of found itself a new name. It's legacy planning. What legacy? Mm, interesting. Leaving for your children. So, Subtle nihilistic remarks there. Well, yeah, dive into that. But what I'm interested in is. You see the idea of having this fadeaway shot, uh, making the shot to leave an impact on those who come after you. Right. And the deeper that you can impact them, the more people that you can impact them, and the better direction that impact is, the more valuable that life was, which was lived, and leaving that fadeaway shot. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think if we're talking about value that life has, I'm not talking about intrinsic value of yes, each human life. Yes, I'm not, nor am I. I'm talking about uh, when somebody looks back upon yeah. their life at the end of their life, they're looking at how much of their life was 
done in performance of that action. Right. So so there's a difference between Abraham Lincoln and Stan who lived down the street. Yeah. You know. I, I, I can see that. So my question then is back to, because I believe this conversation is all about value and priorities. Why is it that you believe leaving a high quality, right. high impact fadeaway right. shot is important? Because though I'm an atheist and though I'm an existential nihilist, spoiler alert for the third part of the question, um, I do think that there are objective moral values, and I do think that there are objective goods and objective evils. Uh, Interesting. I don't think relativism holds up to any logical scrutiny whatsoever. Um, And as a result, I think that to leave the world in a better place is something that is valuable, and it is something that ought to be pursued. Okay. My next question would be, how do you get there? But I'm not going to ask that because that could easily take up the rest of our conversation. I could probably condense it into one sentence. All right, I'm listening. Uh, how? So the question being, how do you get from atheism and existential nihilism from, or I should say, to objective moral values and objective goods? Sure, I think that's a fair phrasing. Darwinian evolution gives rise to the necessity to... Per, uh, to maintain the well-being of all conscious creatures semicolon (laughs) (laughs) therefore it should be valued period okay i have so much which i'd like to talk about on that topic right we we were going to hit pause put that on the list of things to talk about down the sure which by the way listeners i think every time nick and i sit down to do one of these podcasts we ask ourselves what should we be talking about? And if only one of us kept a pad of paper and wrote down all of the tangents right, which right. we skipped, we would never ask ourselves that question again. Well, we had a two-part abortion talk, didn't we? Yeah, we did. I don't think we can get away with a one-part aspirations, nihilism, and the meanings of life talk. I think we just, like, maybe we just do one on the aspirations, one on nihilism. Oh, we're already talking else. about all three, though. I think we'll have to continue this. Well, this could be, three. like, the opening intro. Okay, scene. that's fair. That's potentially fair. a forty-minute opening intro scene. Okay, uh, so the final question, which I'll ask you before we jump into whatever we will talk about after we've each asked each other three questions right. plus plus many, <laughs> would be when you look at that final section, that final object in our topic today uh, of nihilism. How do you see yourself relating to that? I think you kind of may have already alluded to the answer there. But if you dive into that, well, well I, b- I believe the the final topic was the meanings oh, of life. Oh, sorry. Yep, you're right. But um, you're, I do want to touch on nihilism okay. real quick, and that is that I am an existential nihilist, meaning I don't think that there is. And actually, the two are very intertwined. Um, I don't think there's any meaning of life, but I do think there's meaning in life, and I think that distinction is very important. So I it's don't subtle, think, but I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, I don't think anyone or anything is dictating uh, what the value of this life is. But now that we're here, and we really haven't had any choice about that, uh, there's so much that has value in this life, and that should be valued, and that should be pursued and accomplished, um, and that's tailored to each person based on also things that they had no choice in. Uh, For example, I was thinking about this a little early in the podcast. You know, I'm, I am a filmmaker, and that is what I want to do with my life. Um, I once wanted to be a priest and a dentist. That has changed. Did I choose that? And I'm also determinist, and I, I would say, and I hate saying I am a turn, I am this, therefore I think this. Yeah. It's I think this, therefore I am a whatever. Um, uh, okay. 
So another trying that one down. The topic. <laughs> uh, so I don't think that I chose to be a filmmaker. I think that everything in my life sort of led to me being a filmmaker and uh, everything that that entails. Um, so I, I I don't think that. Also, I think this life has infinite meaning because there's nothing after it. Um, and this, I guess refers to the third the third question or the third topic which is what is the meaning of life so again I said that there's no meaning of life but there's meaning in life and um, all of the uh, usually theistic and specifically Christian apologetics that would say that um, there's meaning of life because it is very statistically impossible that we would be here um, easily refuted uh, that there's meaning of life because of our unique design again easily refuted all these different things but the worst one that i think i've ever heard is that if there is no afterlife if there is no heaven if there is no goal that this life is our our stepping stone toward the infinite then this life has no meaning and i think that is actually fundamentally the reverse is true and i can say this very quickly in basically math equation for for those of our audience that have uh very basic understanding of this is going to sound stupid basic understanding of calculus or just of limits or of infinity or the concept of infinity in general but basically if you look at, at this in, in quantitative years so you have uh, optimistically a hundred years of life on this earth and you divide that over an infinite amount of time not even years anymore it's just an infinite amount of time spent in the afterlife that equals, if you put an equal sign after that, that's zero. That is functionally zero. The limit gets and stays arbitrarily close to nothing. Your life means nothing. But if those, if that hundred years is over zero years after you die of consciousness where there's nothing, that is functionally infinite. Every breath that you have on this earth is now that much more precious and that much more infinite and that much more... Uh, valuable because there's nothing after it and I think that is probably the reason why from a from a very sterile perspective why I think life is valuable if you can even say that life is valuable hmm. it's interesting that you use the metric to what determines something of value is almost bound to time or is actually bound to time. Well, we are bound to time as, as conscious creatures. I would say we are bound to time. I would say that there is a difference between quantitative and qualitative significance, though. Sure. And I would say that while somebody may live a very short amount of time, quantitative, they may leave a very large impact on society, yes. qualitative. Absolutely. And I think that if our metric of value is time, then what you just laid out is entirely accurate. I think, however, if our metric is different than time, or time plus something, our calculus equation needs to expand to include some more elements. I think it would probably have to expand, excuse me, expand to include qualitative, the quality of life, and the impact that it had on society. But I would also argue, hmm, uh, maybe this doesn't hold up, that time renders all null. In the end, but I don't think I would argue that because we are, we live in a finite time period. Uh, you know, well, human existence. If you want to argue materialism, then ultimately, time will render all things null. Sure, but um, I don't think so. Why? Because uh, materialism, 
and value judgment. I want to say are mutually exclusive, but I don't know what the the two words mutually exclusive mean when put together. I hear everyone say it all the time. So I'm going to try and say something else, and it might be the same thing. I don't think materialism and value necessarily are related to each other in any sense. What I mean by that is, yes, we are all particles, uh, to quote Christopher Lee, we are all particles, uh, what is it? Maybe paraphrase. 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 Em- em- embroidered on the fabric of time, embroidered and destroyed on the fabric of time. Um, yes, that's true from a very fundamental basic standpoint. But we are also conscious creatures. Yes, that consciousness was is an epiphenomena of particles acting as they do, but we are conscious creatures who can value things. And I still think that my quote-unquote equation of value that, that renders value to life is not dissolved by the fact that we're made of particles. I think that's a, as a that's a completely different separate fact. No, nor am I saying that the equation is dissolved because we're made of particles. I would say, well, the first thing I would comment on is that my mind instantly goes to the value which you're placing on consciousness, calling it an epiphenomenon, in the way you are phrasing some of your sentences, makes me, and I know this isn't true of you, but it right. still makes me perceive this of you, that you dance on the cusp of there being more meaning to what Adam lands where. How do you mean more meaning? So, from a totally materialistic perspective, when we leave, when we make that fadeaway shot with our life, if our entire life is a fadeaway shot, from the moment we're born, we're moving towards our death. Yes. And if we see our life as such, and do as much with our life to leave an impact on the society after us, we value the impact being left on the society. But if this is only, if we leave an impact on the society, we are essentially leaving particles differently than where they would have been if we did not act. Absolutely. And so the only difference which we're leaving functionally is the location of particular particles in the universe. And from a, a sterile perspective, I don't know that it makes a huge difference where the particles land up in the universe if all there is is particles. Unless there is a mechanism to judge the value of the location of the particles which transcends these particles, I think it would be very hard to say this is a good particle location, this is a bad particle location. And maybe that's my Mm. simplistic mind or my Protestant upbringing jumping into this. But I would say that... No, I don't think so. I think what you're saying definitely appears to follow logically. Because it is so platonic, Mm -hmm. and I'm referring to Plato not as in platitudes, uh, in in its theory of forms-esque argument, um, I don't think it holds up. And I think the reason it doesn't hold up is because when you're looking at particles in the universe, Mm -hmm. and if you are just the the passive non-human observer of where particles are. Yeah. There is no such thing as an interesting arrangement of particles or an uninteresting or a good or a bad. You're just looking at where particles are. I could see that. Once you give rise to conscious sentient creatures mm-hmm. who then can value where those particles are, the metric for that valuing isn't something well, I mean, I guess you might be able to call it transcendent, but I would just call it 
valuing the well-being of those conscious creatures. See, I believe in that statement you are overvaluing the value of consciousness because consciousness is not something special in a human versus a rock. It is only just a separate arrangement of particles. And while a rock has qualities and while I have qualities, we might as easily say the fact that the rock can withstand a beating from a thunderstorm and I cannot is an interesting uh, in- interesting quality to have. So I right. think from a materialistic standpoint, the value of consciousness is the same value as a leaf being brown or a rock being hard. I don't think so because when you're saying the value of a leaf being brown, a rock being hard, or a person being conscious, you're looking at that outside of a person being conscious. When I'm saying that consciousness values, I'm saying that from a perspective of a conscious person. So consciousness only values to, to those that are conscious. Outside of that, of course, no, it doesn't, it doesn't matter at all. Let me see if I can, I often give analogies which then break down, but they always sound good when I say that. Sure, to myself. go for so it. I'll, I'll give an analogy and maybe this will break down or maybe it won't. Of course it will at some point. So recently I moved into a new office and I was considering moving into a piece of furniture to this office and I wanted to know if it would fit. My problem was that while looking at the room, I had no way to measure the size of the space to determine whether or not the desk would fit. And what I like, I could look at the room as much as I want, but there was no way without an external measurement to value the size of the room to get a qualitative or quantitative perspective. Well, I guess there's only quantitative, the quantitative perspective on the size of this room, and much less transfer that information to my desk sitting in my garage to see if the two would match. Right. I, without some sort of external tool uh-huh. to make a measurement, I could not give any qualitative or quantitative measurement to it. So if I'm in a scenario where I have no tool to measure, I would say that I cannot perform a measure. And the way I believe that relates is if everything is purely materialistic, and I I make this argument not totally comfortable with its implications, and I may also not entirely agree with the argument, but at least for the sake of conversation, if there if we live in a totally materialistic world and we cannot separate ourselves from any of those, we are in the scenario which I was in, being that we have no tool with which to measure the value. Because anything we create is, right. is of that that space and of that time right. with no external perspective. Interesting. Go so I think I think that was a very useful analogy. More useful to me, unfortunately, than it was to you. Oh snap. Um, and this this uh, this is I think where where Hume and Hume just, just listeners. I got this because as like I was saying it, his eyes would get like larger and larger, yeah. and his eyebrows would come up and up. And I consider stop talking, but I decided that since I had started, yeah, we just go all the way. All right, so back to you. Th- this is where Hume defecates on Plato, <laughs> um, in in the is and ought distinction. Okay, and uh, I could be using Hume wrong here, but I think what I would say is so so this obsession that the I I will say the theistic side has of this external ruler. Mm-hmm of this metric stick to base everything off of what should be where and why and how it should act. As Hitchens says, who should we sleep with and in what position and and, and such uh, is an obsession that you cannot carry from one to the other. So you talk about this table, or I'm sorry, this desk fitting into your into your office and that you need this metric this this tape measure to figure out if it can go from outside to inside right that tape measure doesn't matter to the table whatsoever but now think of yourself as the table is it better for me to be outside in the rain and the thunderstorm or inside of spencer's office 
when you become the table, you realize that there is now a metric and that metric is you. Is it better to be outside or to be in the office? It doesn't matter how wide the table is or whether it can fit through the door. What matters is now this table cares, which obviously tables don't care, but humans care uh, where they are and when and how and in what and in what state. Are they in excruciating agony? Are they being rained on and dented by, by the elements or are they safe inside being used uh, in the office? And I think that's why this concept of a type measure, a universal objective standard breaks down the moment that you try and apply it to anything more or less than the, the humans that you're talking about. So you can either apply it to humans from the human perspective. Actually, that's the only thing you can apply it to. Because when you when you try and say it's better that this atom be over here than over here, there's there's no metric. There's there's really nothing. The only metric that you have, the only tape measure that you have is the value judgment that comes from human beings themselves. But to take that tape measure of the universe and apply it to a human, it doesn't work. I think I understand what you're saying from and I could I think that I very comfortably could sign my name at the bottom of an affidavit saying that this is pretty close to at least what I would apply myself to. At the same time, though, when I look at a situation like this, it definitely seems to be that there's a value judgment taking place. I would prefer to be inside rather than outside yes. in the rain. And when I make that value judgment, I am comparing the state of which I'm in, the arrangement of particles now, to a different state, the arrangement of particles then, and making a statement that this state over here has a higher value than this state over here. And there need there is some criteria in with which I'm making that decision. Maybe it's to decrease my suffering. It's probably to decrease my suffering in that. And for some reason, decreasing my suffering has value. And it may only have value to me. Right. But I think if I am the one creating that value, and that value is individualistic to me, and I think the only way you can expand it beyond that is by saying, from a Darwinian perspective, the value is that of conscious creatures or my genetic offspring or whatever whatever argument you want to make, then the, it has no meaning outside of the meaning of I, chocolate ice cream is better than vanilla ice cream is what I say, and you say vanilla ice cream is better than chocolate ice cream, and we have these value judgments which we make, and they're essentially meaningless value judgments. Maybe you say being inside is better than being outside. I would say that value judgment is the same as your perspective of ice cream flavors and holds no more greater value. So pushing that value judgment to outside of the person and trying to make it universal begs the question what or who then is arbitrating these value judgments and as a result of that question it begs the question what or who is arbitrating that i okay so i hear what you're saying and i think that is a very long conversation to have and what i would say is that maybe one day we can have that conversation but for now the question which at least remains in my mind is having internal value enough or is there also external value yeah the question of where that value comes from and what are the implications of that value i believe is a whole nother conversation yeah absolutely and and to the audience like we like we said this is not an authoritative podcast this oh this isn't... is absolutely authoritative is it yeah you asked me an authoritative question at the beginning and at i have the beginning. not i have not left That's that true. state of mind but uh the yeah. audience is free or are they question no mark, definitely question mark, not. determinism see episode number Three, three, yeah. uh, to to value whatever they value, but 
we are both very curious to hear your thoughts. What do you value? Why? Where does your value judgment come from? Is there a meaning to life? Have you just wasted 47 minutes and 55 well, seconds? Well, I can answer the question is yes. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but thank you so much for listening to Blacklist Remarks. We will see you next time. I'm Nick Stumphauser. I'm Spencer Field. Signing off.